0: If you're looking for a quick, positive, and encouraging word from the Bible, the Psalms is often one of the easiest books to turn to. They can meet us in our pain or give us a joyful feeling to start our day, but when we look through this ancient hymnal, we often make them about us and how we're feeling instead of being about God. Dig deep enough into these songs and you'll find they actually have a lot to say about who God really is. With our grab-and-go mentality, these pretty poems become like a quick spiritual snack and we can miss how rich these passages really are. But when we spend just a little more time digging deep into the Psalms, we find that the way we experience them can be so much more. So what can we learn about God through the Psalms? And how can our time reading through them become an act of worship? This episode is a little different than most of my others, because there isn't a guest scholar this time. Instead, this is a passage that is very near and dear to my heart. What you're about to hear is actually a sermon I did a couple years ago at a church I was attending at the time, South Main Baptist Church in Greenwood, South Carolina. They were hosting a special night service entirely focused about worshipping and praising God. And I couldn't think of a better passage to talk about than Psalms 147. It's been one of the most important chapters for me as I grow in my faith, and hopefully by the end of this, you'll see why. So thanks for listening. Here we go. I have been thinking about this ever since I was asked to speak about like, what What am I going to say? What am I going to talk about? I, I feel like this is such an important night of worship that whatever I said, it, it, it needs to be something that is absolutely valuable. Um, and the more that I thought about it, the more I realized that there's nothing really that can come from me that is going to be, Any more valuable to you. What really matters is that I don't get in the way of this night of worship. So I I only have one goal here tonight. Uh, I don't want to just lecture. I want to make sure that this would be worshipful, that this time that I get to speak to you all, that this would be an act of genuine worship and praise to God and that it would only point us to God further. Um, And because of that, uh, I'm actually going to be talking about a passage in the Bible where the author seems to want to do the exact same thing. Um, So the main passage we're going to be talking about today is going to be Psalms 147. Um, It's right around the middle of the Bible, um, but it's at the very end of Psalms. Um, And the reason why I think that the, the, the psalmist, the person who wrote this, this song to God wants to praise God is, I mean, that's what this is about. It opens up, verse one is, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. That pretty much summarizes everything that I could hope to do here. It's, just to help us continue to praise and worship God. So let's rest in this passage. Let's really dig into this song of praise to God and really sit with the question of why a song of praise is fitting to God. Why should we praise and worship God? So let's rest in this. He starts out by, in verse 2 and 3, talking about Jerusalem. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted, and he binds up their wounds. That sounds nice and flowery to us, but it doesn't really mean a whole lot. However, for the original people that were first hearing this song, this means everything. This was hitting very close to home, and I mean that in a very uh, literal sense. For a little bit of background about why this Psalm is in the Bible, we have to talk about Jerusalem because not only was Jerusalem Israel's capital, it was where the temple of God was located. And this temple wasn't just a cathedral for people to worship God. This was the image of God's presence in the world at that time. The the temple was filled with this beautiful imagery uh, and, and symbolism on in the decorations and in the rituals that they would do. All of it was imagery retelling the biblical story and pointing to the fact that God has created us to be a part of total paradise with him. The, this idea that God loves us and he is ultimate he he is above all and everything that's in the world and we get to be in his living room that's what the temple was it was beautiful it was elegant it was worshipful in all of its parts so just imagine that kind of image that kind of power the meeting place of god imagine how heartbreaking that would be to see go into disrepair as your nation forgot who you were imagine how scary and how fearful it would be for babylonians to come in and destroy israel jerusalem right in front of you to see them ransack the temple take the gold that was holy and gifted to god and use it as plunder to see your friends and family that you would worshiped alongside your entire life and seeing all of them killed or enslaved alongside of you. This is why the Psalms were written. The Psalms were a bunch of songs collected and compiled together during this next season of exile, where Israel had lost their home. They were fugitives in lands, at best, often slaves or often killed. But even though they didn't have a temple that they could go to, even though they didn't have images that they could see, rituals that they could perform together, they had these songs. This was a literary temple, and it worked just like the temple. Psalms actually retells the entire story of the Bible, and it points to the same thing that they pointed to in the temple, that paradise, that moment of true rest and reunite, uh, re- uh, reunion with God. It was pointing towards how great God was. Specifically, this passage, 147, this is at the very end, and so this is resting on those ideas, but they're specifically taking a lot of the ideas from Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy, it's Moses's speech to Israel before they become a nation, before they find the groundings for Jerusalem. Moses tells them, And when all these things come upon you, all of these things that I've told you, the blessings and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God and you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I commanded you today with all your heart and with all your soul. This is speaking directly now to the people in Israel in exile then the lord your god will restore your for- fortunes and have mercy on you and you will ga- and he will gather you again from all the peoples where your the, the lord your god has scattered you that's what this passage is referring to when it says that he gathers the outcasts of israel now deuteronomy 30 that's referenced a lot in the old testament as you can imagine with that kind of national history that passage became extremely important to them. The difference here and the difference in why 147 is such an important song is because this is the only reference to Deuteronomy 30 where it's not just a promise. It's not just God's, um, God's people saying God will deliver you. God will gather you. No, it says here that he gathers. He is active right here, right now. Despite all of the circumstances, somehow this psalmist trusts God to not only be faithful to the promises that he made all the way back at the beginning of Israel's story. Not only does he trust God to heal their broken hearts, he is expecting to see it happen now. This worship that the psalmist is calling us to, when he says, praise the Lord for a song is fitting, this isn't dependent on your current circumstances. This isn't dependent on things being good to have a place to be able to worship. That's not dependent on that. In fact, he's calling us to praise in spite of that. This is a special kind of worship outside circumstance. And after the year that I've had, That sounds really nice. And I'm sure that after the year all of us have had, that sounds really nice. But why can we do this? Let's praise the Lord together. Let's join in. Let's find out how this psalmist can do that. So let's continue to rest and explore why should we rest in in these promises that God has given his people. Let's go back into the psalm, starting at verse 4. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond all measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. When I was reading this passage over the past couple weeks, I, it, it clicked with me that I've never really considered the story of Abraham like this. In verse 4, he says that he determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. When God reveals himself to Abraham, Abraham is without child. He is old. He is probably going to be the last of his line. And then God shows up and God says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm choosing you out of all, and you are going to have, you are going to be a father of many nations. Look at the stars. See how many there are. Your future generations are going to outnumber those. God wasn't just adding weight to that promise when he said that. God wasn't just trying to look around and be like, all right, there's a lot of stars. Yeah, you're going to have more than that. No, 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 no. He... Knew with precision the power in that claim. He knew the exact quantifiable number of stars that he was promising. This isn't just God making a promise and trying to make a point. This is God showing how powerful He is. This is th- th- this passage from one forty-seven is playing off of another passage in Isaiah 40. In in this passage, starting in verse 25, and, and listen for the similarities. Listen to the similar words that are said because it's the same thought. It's the same reflection. In verse 25 of Isaiah 40, it says, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see, just like he said to Abraham. Look up, look up. See the stars. Who created these? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not a one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall, be, shall fall exhausted, But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. He uses the stars again to demonstrate how powerful God really is. He is the one that holds the stars in place, not letting them just fade away. God is the one who takes every single atom of, of matter and keeps it together, keeps it consistent for uh, us to experience everything, for us to have life. That is the kind of power that we're talking about here. Absolute cosmic power. What human can compare to the being that holds them together. What what earthly thing could stand against that kind of power? And yet some reason, that cosmic power gives to the faint who look towards him, allows them to soar, allows them to be uplifted, to do amazing things. Why? We'll get to that. But the point that I really want to make sure that we get when we read those first three verses in 147, the point here is that God, he has the ability to destroy stars in an instant. And yet he chooses to give them names instead. That is a mighty God. Let's continue, starting in verse 7. So we'll we'll tackle all of that in just a second, but the first thing that we really need to make sure that we understand is that last word right there. In English, it's two, steadfast love. In Hebrew, it's one. It's the word chesed. You kind of have to clear your throat to say it, but chesed is such a strong, powerful word in Hebrew, and we don't really have a good equivalent for it in English. But if I had to try to define it, the the basic idea is that a chesed is a covenant partner of love, doing concrete actions for another, towards another, to fulfill the promises of their covenant, but to go above and beyond what they could ever be called for to do. And doing all of this for no gain of themselves. It's a bit of a long-winded definition, so maybe an example will help. It's the idea of a husband who devotes all of his time and his energy and his care to to his wife, who is sick. She can't do anything on her own. She can't dress herself. She can't feed herself. And yet, this husband takes care of her, feeds her, dresses her, Make sure that she has everything she needs in order to be able to live and thrive, and gives up everything for her, knowing that there's no benefit, there's there's no there's no gain to be gotten here. He's doing it out of love for her, and love for that covenant that he made with her. It's this idea of commitment, of choice and desire, leading to an unbridled devotion to generosity. It's a big, strong word. So what does it mean for a God like this who can, who has all power that can be imagined, what does it mean for a God like that to have chesed? Well, it looks like the story of the Bible. It looks like a creator creating a self-sustaining world, a garden where Everything is taken care of. The waters comes down, the fruits grow. It takes care of itself. It's the story of God devoting himself to a family that would be nothing without him and yet chooses them out of a crowd no matter what and stays with them throughout all of their messy history. It's the story of God leading Israel out of slavery from the Egyptians through a cloud that covers the sky, and taking them to Bethleh- to Jerusalem, it's the story of God providing rain finally after years of a drought for the sake of His prophet Elijah. And when Elijah is alone, when he is wanted or dead, uh, want- wanted for dead, God providing for him in the wilderness, giving him through food through the young ravens as he cries. Are you seeing what's happening look again at the imagery that's used in this passage he covers the heavens with the clouds clouds producing rain to 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 allow the grass to grow on the hills the garden the cloud leading israel the young ravens that cry for food like elijah cried for food and was provided for the ravens this is very intentional imagery that's leading us to repeat all the ways that God has been faithful to his people throughout all of their story. It's imagery pointing back to the story of God's faithfulness. And there's plenty of bad things that happened to each of these people. There's plenty of terrible things that they did not deserve and that they had to, to struggle through. That is not negated. That, it's not as though that doesn't matter. It's not as though God, that is God's want or wish. And it's not like he wants you to forget about that and just take an optimistic point of perspective. No, 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 no. The point here is that even when sin and death tries to take over, it is always God's chesed, God's steadfast love that rules and reigns supreme. It is that that is ultimate. And so he doesn't want you to pretend like that pain doesn't exist, like that pain doesn't matter, like that pain isn't serious or important. No, it's the the fact that God cares about you, and God cares just as much about that pain as you do. God feels that pain just as much as you do, if not more but he never lets you experience it alone. You are never alone in that and you will be able to be lifted up by the Almighty through that. That's true in the Bible, but that's definitely true in our lives, in our testimonies. I know that because I've experienced that. I can say that up here right now because I've experienced that. I've experienced that frustration and that anger with myself. I've experienced that disappointment and that frustration with life. I've experienced that pain of losing someone and not having a good reason why to explain it away because there is no good reason why. And yet, every single time I feel like I'm at the end of my rope, every single time I think I can't make this any further. God shows up in my life in ways that I can't describe, I, ways I can't explain. He appears and calms my heart on a mountaintop. And I realize just how awesome he is. I, I, he, he introduces new people to, uh, to, to, to fellowship with, to be able to worship him alongside and point me back to that. And comfort me in that pain in ways I can't describe. There's never been a point where I've been that low that I've gotten out of it myself. And that's because when you're in a place that low, it is God's steadfast love, God's chesed, that will allow you to soar. God, the God of the cosmos, there is no strength to compare And yet, he cares for you. He doesn't care whether or not you can make it. He doesn't care how strong you are. Compared to him, that's nothing. No, what he cares about, what he takes pleasure in, what brings him that joy, is those who hope in his steadfast love. Because those are the people that will be able to see how awesome he wants this experience to be. Those are the people that experience true life. So God will provide. But what is that leading to? Again, that ultimate paradise. Look at verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. We're starting to get why. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. This is describing something precious, something beautiful. Just like he provides for the young ravens that cry, he blesses the young of us before we're even born. God is faithful. God is loving. God is gracious That kind of chesed, that kind of steadfast love is so amazing. But as we focus on that and focus on that fact that God loves me, let's not lose sight of how unbelievably strong that sentence is, how unfathomable that claim is. Let's not lose sight of that awe that's behind why that love even matters to us. Verse 15, he sends out his command to this earth. His words run swiftly. Okay, so pay attention. The psalmist just said, we're about to see God show up. This is what God, what it looks like for God to appear, for God's word to come directly to our experience. So listen for it. Verse 16, what does it look like for God to show up? He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? Okay, stop. Because he just asked us a question. And that's a very important question to be asked. I have a couple of pictures that you may recognize from the news a couple of weeks ago. If we can pull some of those up and cycle through them. These are pictures of the snowstorm that our nation just went through. Most of these are coming from Texas. We are in the point in human history where we have control over most things— We have the ability to control so much and to make our lives so comfortable, so easy. We can make anything we want seemingly appear out of nothing. We have power unrivaled by any point in human history. And yet all of that is completely nullified. Again, Texas. All of that is completely nullified by the sheer power of absolute coldness. This sheer cold is more powerful than anything our strongest defense in the 21st century can compare to. We weren't ready for this, and there's nothing that we could have been done to be ready. So imagine these images thousands of years before. Imagine how devastating an unexpected snowstorm like this would be to people in living bestly in tents. Are you starting to get the picture? Even this, this is nothing compared to the power of God. Compared to God, this is God brushing some dust off of an old book. This is effortless. God's power is so much stronger and more awe-inspiring than this. That's scary. Yet, that's not God's word. We were expecting God to show up. God hasn't appeared yet. So what could possibly stand against that cold? Who can stand against that cold? Verse 18, we find our answer. He, God alone, sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. How beautiful is this? God has the power to destroy and he uses it instead to save. Really, how great is that God? I, I, I think again to another passage. I mentioned Elijah earlier, the prophet. There's a specific story that this just shot to mind. It's after Elijah is dejected by everyone. He's being, his life is being sought after. People are out to kill him. He's alone and he's afraid and he doesn't know whether he's gonna make it the next day. No, 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 no. He doesn't know how he's going to die the next day. Starvation or an assassin, who knows? 1 Kings 19, verse nine. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? (laughs) Elijah says, I've been very jealous and devoted for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. He's saying, What do you mean? What am I doing here? And God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. God's going to show up. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard that, not the earthquake, not the thunder, not the fire, things that could easily destroy any of us in an instant. When he heard the whisper, he wrapped his face in a cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? God's holiness, God's worthiness, worshipfulness, it's not experienced in his ultimate power alone. The reason why our God is worthy of praise is because of his chesed, of his steadfast love and his grace that exists somehow in that power. God has the power to destroy stars and yet he gives them names. God has the right to dismiss us, and yet he sent his son to die for us instead. That is our God. That is why we should praise the Lord. So there's just a couple more verses left. Verse 19 in Psalms 147. God declares his word, that grace, that chesed to Jacob his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. God has that power, and yet he chooses to be faithful. He is faithfulness. And whether that faithfulness is to all of humanity, that we are not damned forever, or whether that's the promise to Abraham, that, there, that he would become a father of many nations, who would bless the entire world. God is faithful to his promise. Last thing I want to make sure to point out here, it would be easy to look at this and say, aha, I found the small print. I have to follow the rules, and then God will give me this faithfulness. But again, think back to what we've been talking about. This rule here isn't about God's laws or the the ways to be a good person. No, no. Think back to Deuteronomy 30. When God is most glorified in us is when we take most satisfaction in him. All of the laws, all of the rules of how to be a good person, that's just pointers to the fact that God is so much greater than we could have ever asked or dreamed. 1 John 5 says in verse 3, for this is the love of God. This is how we show love, not by rules, but that we would keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. How can we say that? How can we say that his commands aren't burdensome? Because 1 John also says And this is his commandment. There's only one that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he has commanded us. The point is that the only rule, the only statute, is for us to rest in God. Like Psalms 147 said God doesn't take his delight in our power, in our ability. No. But the Lord takes pleasure in those only who, only those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. So what do we do with this? What is our response? How do we worship God who is so clearly worthy of our praise? Well, look back to verse one. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. God, thank you so much. We don't deserve you. We stand in awe of you. You are so powerful, you are so great. There's no way we can ever comprehend fully here on earth just how amazing you are. But you didn't call us to fully understand or know. You just want to know us fully. You didn't call us to take action on our own. You simply called us to stay in awe of the action you took for our sake. God, you are awesome. And I pray that we would worship you and that our worship would be true, that it would be holy, and that it would be honoring to you, that we would stand in awe of your steadfast love. Thank you, God. If you want to explore Psalms or biblical poetry like this passage, I've included links to several resources down in the show notes below. Thank you so much for listening to That Won't Preach. I hope this podcast can be an encouragement as you continue to ask hard questions and explore your faith. If you'd like this show, let me know by leaving a rating in your podcast player and by leaving a review. For more episodes and resources, be sure to head over to bit.ly thatwon'tpreach. Again, that's bit.ly slash thatwon'tpreach.